calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor. I am your other host. My name is Sarah Century. Today we are here with a very special guest, Manny Murphy. Welcome to the show, Manny. Hi. Thanks. Manny! Woo! Yeah. I am. <laughs> the creator of the new graphic memoir through Fantagraphics, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Wow. This comic. This comic. A comic, graphic work. I kind of use them all interchangeably. Manny, we are like just so pumped to have you here today. Obviously, we are super excited to talk about I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. We also are going to revisit Gay Genius, which we reviewed last Pride Month when we talked about queer and trans anthologies of graphic works. Is there anything that you tell people usually? You know, sometimes I'm like, what's your whole bag? And people are like, I, what do I say to that? I'm like, I don't know. What's your bite? What do you say when someone's like, what's your thing? You know? Oh, like, yeah. What's what your is thing? My thing? I make comics. I'm a comics maker. I've heard some people say Rose Garden doesn't qualify as a comic because it's not in uh, little panels. It's pages. I will slap the book right out of their hands. Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what the get out of here? Yes. I call it a comic. It's being published by Fantagraphics, who publish comics. They have been publishing more and more atypical comics, is what I would call it, mm. which is exciting. So I guess I draw atypical comics. I also draw comics that have panels in them and the more traditional grid style. But let's see. So I identify as a witch butch, and um, that's sort of my gender there. That's the, like, most beautiful combo I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm over here just having my mind blown by that. I'm like, all right. Yeah, and also, that's you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Also be like, yes, that would describe. Uh, and this is why I love gender expansion. <laughs> yeah. We can all find better ways to describe ourselves. Yes. Than, like, this pink and blue thing I don't think is working for most of us. <laughs> but that's a rant for another day or for later in the episode. Let's find out. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, Manny, how did you get into comics? Like, did you read them as a kid? Like, have you been drawing for a super long time? Like, what was your gateway drug to comics? Gosh, gateway drug to comics. Maybe Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Say more. <laughs> I collected Garbage Pail Kids when I was like, you know, seven, eight years old. And I was obsessed with them, just how they looked as little cartoons. They sometimes had comics on the back of them, too. And I found out later that Art Spiegelman was behind some of that. So I consider that one of my comics roots. I definitely drew from a very early age as a way to kind of zone out and get out of my uh, surroundings and into that more calm place. Not always calm because sometimes drawing is stressful, but mm -hmm. it definitely was like my uh, escape. And I loved cartoons like Garfield and Peanuts and what were some of the other ones? Tintin, which is highly problematic. 
Right. We just had actually uh, somebody on here talking about <laughs> Tintin, how appealing it is when you're a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And then problematic later because you're just like, eh. Gosh, yeah. Ironically, for listeners, this will be the first mention of Tintin for you. Although oh. for us, we've already talked to that person. I love it. I think it's like memento podcast. Ooh, where are you starting? <laughs> Who knows? Um, I didn't get into comics, comics until... Later in my teen years, when an like older queer friend showed me their comics collection, it was full of Love and Rockets and Phoebe Gleckner, Twisted Sisters, and like Linda Berry stuff mm-hmm. and Alison Bechdel stuff. So that was the point where I was like, oh, maybe I could do this. Because before most of the cartoonists I was reading were all men. And it didn't, it wasn't something that I could, like, or all cis men, it wasn't something Mm -hmm. I could really relate to. I was like, well, maybe that's like a man's job. I seriously had that impression for a while as like a child. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know really how people would go around about making a comic. Although I have gone back and found some of my old drawings and I made a stapled book of, it was like a cat gang Versus a rat gang. (laughs) And each page had like featured a different player from the gang and and like his girlfriend, this other bad cat. And like, I don't know. So I definitely was dabbling in comics at an early age. But there was a period of time there where I just didn't think it was possible. Yeah. I mean, first off, release the Murphy cut. I want to see <laughs> this comic. I'm devastated yeah. that it hasn't been printed. Yeah, I'll uh, see if I can find it. <laughs> oh. Instagram, oh. Instagram. <laughs> you know, I understand why artists don't. I really do. I get that. Like, you, I don't want to share my poems I wrote when I was young with people. I <laughs> no. get it. I really get it. But also, like, I want to see that stuff. I want to like revel in like. What you were like as little people becoming the humans you are today. I just think that's mm-hmm. intriguing how we get here. Mm-hmm. And someone would be like, oh, I feel the same way about your poems. I'm like, oops, burned them. Didn't mean to. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. Didn't keep those. I, I did find a drawing recently. I put it on my refrigerator and I put it on Instagram. It was from some of my old kid drawings. And it just had this character with these really cool shoes. And they were saying in a word bubble, I'm mad. And they had angry eyebrows. And (laughs) I thought, well, this is so good that I had this way to express myself when I was a a child. Oh, I just looked it up and it is so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I'm mad. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Beautiful. So there was an early start. Yeah. Um, was comics always the thing that you felt the most comfortable doing as far as an art form goes? Well, I started before doing comics, I was doing zines, mm-hmm. like per zines about mental health and abuse and radical uh, anti-psychiatry kind of slant. And But it was very visual. I had like a lot of collage in there and drawings. And somebody was like, why don't you do comics? around this time that I was putting out zines because they're like, basically, that's what these look like. You could do it, you know? And I was like, oh, I've never really done that before. I'll try doing that. And then that's when I just got hooked. I took a class, like a um, continuing education class at PNCA, the Pacific Northwest College of Art. And uh, I did like a six-page comic in there about this trans hunter that was huntress. They called her a huntress, but He was trans. I'm sorry to be referring to them as both because all of the information about them was like while they were identifying still as a woman, their name and everything that I used during that. I would probably do it differently nowadays, but this was uh, Mm -hmm. in 2006. Uh, My understanding of trans dynamics and things was a little dated at the time, but it's called Death of a Modern Diana which was the title of uh, the obituary that was used when he died. And I was kind of obsessed with doing 
like a lot of reading and reference about things and then drawing them. Like I wanted to tell biographical type stories, which was different than what I was doing in the zines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask because there is, there has kind of classically always been like overlap, right? Between comics and zines. And uh, we've seen a bunch of people, I think, uh, use that to really good effect. And so I was wondering, were you doing like zine fests whenever you were first doing uh, zines? And then also, because I definitely have seen you at a zine fest. So I know you do them now. Um, But was that always a part of your experience with them? It was always a part. Once I made a zine, I wanted to take it to the Portland Zine Symposium, which was happening every year in Portland. And I mean, there were people that were starting to do comics. I remember at a zine fair, I'm trying to remember the name of this guy. I think it's Greg Means. I walked up to him and I saw that he had comics, mini comics there. And I asked him if he had any mini comics by women. I wasn't thinking women and queers at the time. I was just like, not dudes. (laughs) And he did. He was like, yeah, I've got one here. And... It was really like very boys club at that time. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much comics and zine crossover there. I mean, we were all there at the same place, but it was two distinctive categories. I started doing comics fests as well, which was really similar to what I was doing at the zine fest. But I don't know if we're going to get into that. <laughs> How did Gay Genius come together? Like, did you always want to see an anthology or was that something that kind of developed? I always wanted to see it. There were some other queer anthologies that I'd seen. They weren't queer specific. It was like Robert Kirby's Boy Trouble, which was like gay boy specific, which I loved. And um, there was also Juicy Mother, which I believe was edited by Jen Camper. And that was like lesbian specific. But I hadn't seen any like really queer anthologies. I remember once Robert Kirby asked me, why didn't you call it queer genius? You know, you call it gay genius and it's not really like gays. It's like queers. And I was like, well, uh, gay is still being used as like a negative term among young people. I wanted to see it emblazoned on uh, comic shelves, you know, like among the other indie comics. I wanted people to want to pick up this thing that said gay on it. Yeah, and and then, you know, also, like, gay genius, the GG looks nice. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. It's it's called artistry. I also feel like there's a lot of people, a lot more than people realize or, like, want to talk about, who, like, also identify as gay, who aren't what we would consider to be, like, gay men or lesbian women. They're Mm -hmm. gay, but they're like, oh, if you want to drill down into specifics, it's this or this. And I think Mm -hmm. it's... There, there is this desire sometimes to want to find, like, what is the one word I can say? And it's like, that's the point. Like, the point is that there isn't a one word. So it's all made up, and we have to embrace the made-upness and figure it out for ourselves. And when you find a term that works for you, beautiful, but, like, we're not going to be done evolving ever. So there's going to be new things, and we're going to have to learn them, and, and then there's going to be, like, imperfect things, and we're going to have to be, like, creative with our identities, as we've always been. So, I don't know. I hate when people say stuff like that. I'm like, because of art, that's why, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Don't Mm -hmm. be obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, Sarah and I both do a bit of um, anthology editing. We have our annual Pride Month anthology called Decoded Pride. Mm. And I think we both have different things we really love about the editing process. It's just like, what? Like, all this beautiful shit. I just get to be like, oh, Like, I cry about not being able to take someone's piece, you know, because we don't have room. And I'm like, this is the best life ever. But I'm just curious for you, like, what was the editing process like? What did you like about it? What was a challenge? A challenge was definitely refusing people because once I had put the comic into a Kickstarter campaign, it started getting a lot more attention and people were like, I want to be in that comic. And I was like, well, sorry, you know, it's already full. Maybe there will be a gay genius too, which I always always hoped there would be, but we'll see. Who knows? (laughs) Right. But I sent out like a manifesto. It was like a good chunk of an email to uh, maybe 10 or 20 artists that I thought 
would be cool if they were included or people that I knew that some of them weren't artists. They'd be like writers or zine makers, people that I thought would make a good comic if they sat down and tried. Mm -hmm. I sent that out and then asked those people to recommend friends. Eventually, I got a list of about 20 people that had agreed to do it. And some people had work already done that I had seen before in zines that I wanted to reprint on a larger scale. And some people were making stuff just right there, you know, from originating with the manifesto that I sent. The theme was history. It's not explicit in the book, but that's what I told everybody. It could be a made-up history, and it could be like real life. It could be personal. There were a lot of ways to interpret that. So I wound up getting a lot of different varied submissions. But it took about two years, and it was kind of like pulling teeth and hurting cats. (laughs) It was working with a lot of people's like low self-confidence around the idea of like publishing their work. Right. Like actually printing it or printing it in a, on a larger scale. So there was a lot of um a lot of nurturing to do, which wasn't a terrible thing. I think I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> right. Praise, just be like, of course you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> because they can, right? Like that's always the thing is is like I get that people have you know, hard times where it's like harder to create and stuff. But yeah, I do always like believe in a lot of beginning artists before they believe in themselves, I guess, which is, mm-hmm. you know, nature of the beast. I'm sure that's how we all were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get it's we, good. <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of emails from people who are like, are you sure I should submit? <laughs> it's like, it's yes, like, yeah. of course I am. Please yeah. submit. And then they submit things that are absolutely beautiful. Mm. Or our first year, someone submitted a, a submission and they just like shit talked their their story in the submission. And it was like, wow, I'm like not even excited to read this. And then we read <laughs> it and we're like, this is brilliant. What are you talking oh, about? No, yeah. So it's like, but I get it. Like I'm also, I was just telling Sarah before we started recording, I was like, I'm terrible at everything and I'm failing and I'm feeling this way. And it's like, yeah, we get it. We all have a bit of imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. And on the episode, Nalo Hopkinson said, and I will quote her till the day I die because she said it on our podcast. Wow. She said, well, I know, right? <laughs> I'm flipping my hair. Um, <laughs> she said, you know, you can't have imposter syndrome if you're not doing the work. And I was like, damn. Okay. Huh. I hear you. <laughs> that's So great. anyways, that's a tangent. But yeah, editing is incredible. It's this this mix of like helping people grow and of just like, like you said, just plain believing in them and being mm-hmm. like, yes, this is interesting. Yes, you have something here. Mm-hmm. You can do this. Like, I know you can. And mm-hmm. I love that that part of getting to encourage, because again, I think these industries of of writing, of creating comics, they, they are so cishet white dude dominated. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of those people who are, are good folks who are trying to uplift others. And then there's a ton of people who are not. And that is, it makes it hard. It makes it hard to break in. It makes it hard to believe in yourself. I also remember Danny Lore was on the pod and they talked about how with Faya Magazine, they had so many people submitting who had been, you know, had their stories declined so many times, different places. And they finally realized like, oh, it's because it's a bunch of white people who are gatekeeping and they Mm -hmm. don't get what's clever about my story because they're not from my culture, Mm -hmm. because they're not black, because they're not, you know, aware of how we speak or or what we do. So I think Mm -hmm. that editing by nature is a gatekeeping role. But it can also be like a, I don't know, what do you call people who like st- a doorman role? You know, we're like, come on in. Concierge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. An usher of sorts, a midwife, yeah. a, you know, anybody who's like, please come in. Like, we want you here. Mm-hmm. So my editors gosh. are definitely midwives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just talking about this with uh, the artist and author Shira Spector who's got a book coming out with Fanographics called Red Rock Baby Candy. And um, she was talking about it as birthing, you know, as like 
I was talking about it and she was referring to her book as more like a teenager, which I've totally done in the past, referred to my books as like, especially if I've been working on them for a while, like Rose Garden, like it's been kind of out in the world a little bit, but now it's like really out in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, she also has a teenager, a human teenager. <laughs> so <laughs> I took her word for it that, <laughs> that that was an apt metaphor. But yeah, definitely like books being born all over the place. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and sometimes was, you're giving birth to them in a, like a hallway. Sometimes <laughs> it's like at your desk. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was just going to say, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden obviously has been out in the world, as you say, just a little bit for a long time. When did you start mm-hmm. working on this book? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2015. Oh, yeah. So like, it's in its sixth year. Um, yep. It took five years. It was about a chapter a year. So I was putting each chapter out as a zine. And so it was about one per year that I was managing. And now it's a whole book. And yeah. as is often the nature with comics of all kinds, I had maybe like two and four, you know, <laughs> uh, not the whole story. So actually getting to read it from beginning to end is truly an incredible experience. I thought this was maybe one of the more beautiful comics I've seen in a long time. You use a like watercolor, right? On the pages? Yeah, well, it's water soluble ink. Right. It's in little cartridges. You're supposed to put it in like a reusable ink pen. Mm -hmm. I just dip my paintbrush in the ink. So it's basically watercolor. It's watered down ink. And for this, you were working on what looks like it's school paper, right? Like it has like Mm -hmm. the lines. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure that that carries the ink in a very interesting way. I know that visually it works really well, but was that kind of hard to get? (laughs) Was it kind of like going all over the place in the beginning? Oh, yeah, it was it was hard to get a handle on. I just it was newsprint, so it absorbs the water right away. It's like a paper towel, yeah. And it also bleeds. And uh, I just kind of welcomed the like bleeding look to it because I wanted it to have that wet, watery look the way that Portland is all the time is rainy and wet. Um, Gray. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so I would uh, use the paint and then I would add water to it and kind of smear it around the ink, sorry. Uh, and then kind of smear that around. And then if I had any like bleeds that were like unacceptable to me, I would go over them in white ink. Originally, I had ran the zines off in grayscale, you know, just black and white. And um, you couldn't see that white on there, but you could see it a lot more in the um, color version that Fantagraphics just is putting out. And th- so that's a little, I'm like, oh, you can see that. You can see where <laughs> I was like using whiteout basically. <laughs> but uh, I've heard from people be like, oh, I love the, you know, how the white looks on there. And I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> right, exactly. As long as it's working for you. Yeah, and happy I think it does. Yeah. Thanks. You know, I also wanted to say about the art, there's such a, you're evoking so many emotions when we read, read through it, you know, and, and, you know, there's nostalgia, but there's also, it's like a, it's a very haunting narrative. And mm-hmm. I thought that the art only accentuated those aspects of, of the story. and and you know, truly, it's like, this is only a book when you put the pieces together. If you cut it apart, it's not the same thing. I I guess I'm just curious, was that like, was that haunting? Was that something you discovered as you were using it? Was it intentional? Or, you know, am I like out in left field? No, it was intentional. It's the word that I've been hearing people use about the book over and over is haunting. And I I'm thrilled about that. (laughs) Right. Um, I felt haunted by a lot of the stories that were going on in my head and um, that were not going on, but that were taking up space. So putting that on paper, I'm glad that uh, that came across. I think it does. But there's also the element of so much of it is photo reference, right? Or like there's so much of it that's, you know, you clearly have done massive amounts of research to tell the story and kind of how it all interconnects with Portland, right? Which is something that, yeah, so few comics like really just get the atmosphere of the place that they're in and the way that this comic does. 
So I think it's super successful on that. But I also learned a lot whenever I was reading this and just was like, oh, dang, like we know a lot. There's conversations and articles about the kind of white supremacist history of Oregon, but I didn't really know about a lot of this. Like I hadn't read about it. So mm. it was very new to me to read about this trial. Mm, great. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I recently talked to somebody who works for the Oregonian. I'm not going to say his name, um, but <laughs> he uh, was like, why? He didn't, he didn't understand the last, the last half of the book where it sort of spans out and starts talking more about white nationalism and the history of white supremacy in the area. And right. he was stumped because he was, he had basically, he knew all the stories already. He just didn't understand why I was putting them all together. And I think he forgot that there's a lot of people that don't know those stories. Like he had been working for the Oregonian for like 40 years and mm. covering these things in depth. So they were a big part of his life. Right. But when I was creating it, I was imagining people, well, a lot of people that I know that live in Portland now, even that are like, oh, I didn't know this stuff happened or, you know, kind of right under your their noses in a way. So I imagine people outside of Portland, of course, are not going to know either. And there's people of a certain age, I think, that are going to remember like when Geraldo got his nose broken. And, right. you know, sometimes people remember Tom Metzger and the trial that happened. But so a lot of people don't know about it. So I'm really glad to hear that it's not just a repeat for people. <laughs> right. Well, I thought that part of what you do here, right, is kind of draw this overarching theme of how older people take advantage of young people, right? Like there's a ton of that in this. Yeah. It super is not the only thing that connects the stories, but to me that was a big part of it because I was like, yeah, we're talking about stories that kind of just have these tragic endings, right? And like mm -hmm. the flow worked for me because it does cover a lot of, I feel like, yeah, it's a memoir, right? Like you're talking about a lot of the things that you witnessed and like were at least living, you were living in Portland this whole time, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's just kind of comes across as a personal observation as well as, you know, extensively researched. Mm, good. Thank you. I think that to me is what's really, really magical about I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. It's a memoir. It's a historical narrative about white supremacy, a history that we collectively suppress. So it's a reclaiming history, like not in the positive sense. Mm. It's a celebrity biography. It's a queer history. And it's also anti-fascist history. And by bringing all those elements together, it just, it comes across so frank and so, as Sarah said, well-researched, but the memoir almost feels like the way you've selectively chosen to tell the stories and where you've told them. That feels like the big reflection of what makes it memoir. And it's just such an impressive work. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about the research. I would love to hear more about that process if, you're, if you would be willing to talk about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I started drawing River Phoenix on that old paper and I realized that I wanted to use it for a comic. And then so I immediately went out and got a book called Last Night at the Viper Room by Gavin Edwards. And that's the story of like River Phoenix and his life and his death. It's very well done. It's got a lot of info in there. And I knew that I was going to also bring the death of Mulugeta Sarah into the story. Both of those deaths happened around the same time like of the year. So it's a time of year where I'm thinking about them. So I had them on my mind. And um, I knew that they connected in my mind through Gus Van Sant. So I got a book also called 100 Little Hitlers by uh, Eleanor Langer. And it's about the murder of Mulugeta Sarah and it goes and like interviews and like tracks down all the people involved, including the murderers. And she has a lot of information about Ken Death, the main instigator of the murder. And she gives her uh, own take and opinion on how she felt about Tom Metzger being pinned for the responsibility for the crime. Um, a lot of people think that that was erroneous. People that aren't even like on the right wing or anything, but some people think that 
going after him was like an infringement on free speech. But um, while I was doing research, which involved a lot of uh, videos and movies that I would watch and take photos of and get stills from and draw from those, I was watching a Geraldo episode and I realized that this man, Ken Miski or Ken Death, uh, the murderer, was in this episode along with Tom Metzger and along with his son. And it was the episode where Geraldo's nose gets broken. I realized that they did have a connection. And the whole point of the trial was trying to prove this connection between the skinheads here in town and Tom Metzger, who lived in San Diego at the time. And uh, here it was, this was this information. So while I was doing research, I was coming up and finding things that um, I don't think are are well known. I definitely drew a lot from books, mainly the two books that I listed. But I have like in the bibliography, there's like, I don't know, maybe 20 books and a bunch of articles and uh, magazine articles and newspaper articles. I tried to include everything. Even now I'm remembering things that I've forgot to list for that I used for visual reference, but I tried to include everything. Yeah, your bibliography at the end is like very long. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about you lettering it and I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, their hand must have hurt so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did have to like re-letter it too because I had lettered it in black and white originally and they were like, no, it's got to be color files. And um, so I re-lettered it again. (laughs) So yeah, definitely it was laborious, but I was really proud of that. I kind of enjoyed doing it because it felt like it validated the amount of piles of books and stuff I had around my house (laughs) and all all the time spent squinting at a computer screen and taking photos of stills of videos and things like that. everyone. I want to talk about our Patreon real quick. So we have a ton, a ton, a ton of extra content on our Patreon. And every time somebody's like, hey, I caught up to all the Bitches on Comics episodes. I'm like, guess what? There's all of this other content. We do interviews, reviews, extra episodes in general, Nick Cage corner, Ghost Rider corner, two separate things, but sometimes they overlap, right? So if you want to check that out, you go to patreon.com slash bitches on comics, which is where we sell our wares. And you can subscribe for $2 or for $5 or more dollars because we just give all of the content to all of the subscribers, regardless of what tier you're on. Because, you know, hippie shit. Sometimes there's early access. It depends on what time I got up that day. <laughs> you mean early access to our regular episodes? Yeah, I guess that is what I mean. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like early access in general. They're like, oh, I get early access to Sarah? I'm in. I'm like, yeah. I mean, the second I wake up, I will respond to your email if you subscribe Patreon. <laughs> Just kidding. I won't. I'm terrible at responding to emails. Even Patreon won't get you a faster email response from me. <laughs> we'll love you to the ends of the earth, but we're not going to email you. Love you. Suck at email. Sorry. <laughs> You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. it up in the book but when was the first time you remember thinking about River Phoenix like was that just a icon for you early on or was that something that kind of came about later yeah I think they showed Stand By Me at my school right after it was out on video or out on film I guess no they had a VCR with the big red green and blue thing the projector do you remember it <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> it was a uh, no. no, maybe this is <laughs> pre your guys' time. Uh, but <laughs> they showed Stand By Me and it just like knocked my socks off. I thought he was so attractive and so like powerful in his role. And I talk, I do talk about that in the book as being one of my first instances of seeing him. And then I saw like the Explorers and he's in the Indiana Jones movie. But right. I think that's where I remember first seeing him. Really? I believe so. Yeah. Oh yeah. Same. He's great. He steals it. Yeah. You're just like, he steals it, yeah. I want to see this. Yeah. Like, I, I, to this day, if I watch that movie, I'm like, I just want to see the one about River Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I don't actually care that much about her support if I'm being honest. <laughs> real well they were gonna make one they were they really wanted him to be the the one for the tv series that was going to be a young indiana jones but he would he wouldn't do it sadly well good for him you know, yeah yeah he kept do whatever it like you want little five minute moment of awesomeness but yeah i saw i saw uh my own private idaho when it was in a theater and i was pretty young i was like maybe 12 or 13 so that also made a big impression on me Right. I didn't watch that movie until I was maybe like 25 or something. It was way later than you would think. And yeah, I mean, he just River Phoenix is just such a amazing actor and such like kind of a heartbreaking figure because like that entire yeah. movie just shines because of him. Mm hmm. I was going to say that I thought it was kind of interesting how you talk about Geraldo Rivera. That's his name, right? Yeah, yeah. I always kind of forget about him, but he did a lot of things, right? <laughs> that kind of were a little questionable. But it reminded me, too, that like during like the early 90s with like all of this talk show stuff, right? Like there was all of these different talk shows. And I just remember them doing the things of like, well, here's like the KKK members like arguing with like these moms or like something. <laughs> um, and I was just thinking about that and thinking about how kind of weirdly normalized that was on television, even in the 90s, where I was like, huh, I guess I haven't thought about that in a really long time. Yeah, I was just uh, reminded by uh, this guy, Ryan Carey, who reviewed the book at Soul Red, that Geraldo now is kind of like on the side of the white nationalists, like he's like a Trump supporter and right. kind of a right wing guy now, which maybe he was always. I'm not sure. I didn't I don't think I was really allowed to watch that kind of TV when I was growing up. 
I definitely saw like the later versions, like uh, with Sally and uh, Ricky Lake. Mm -hmm. Ricky Lake was great. (laughs) Ricky Lake kind of like holds up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, Jerry Springer and all that. Right. Which uh, was definitely cut its teeth on the stuff that Geraldo was doing. And Oprah too. I mean, she had definitely had her share of neo-Nazis on her show and she regretted it. She did some show later on and had one of the guys come back who was like, had repented and decided he was no longer a Nazi. And he came back on to apologize and she went and apologized to viewers for ever having aired the show. Mm. Uh, this show where one of the skinheads calls her like a racist slur, which I mentioned in the book. Right. Yeah. I remember that part of the book. Also, yeah. Wow. Just like the attention of that. That's so wild to think of. But that's also another thing where it's like we always kind of had this like shock television, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not always, but I definitely remember her. The more I think about it in kind of in context with this book, I was like, yeah, I remember all kinds of that being on television just very casually in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. uh. Manny, it seems to me that part of what is interesting about how the timing of the book comes out is it gives us this this historical understanding of how there's been such an intense resurgence of white supremacy. Also, the idea that it never went away. I always appreciate a narrative that is like, stop pretending this is new and stop pretending there was a time where we, we like, check, solved. Close, we've gotten close, but then, you know, Congress. Thanks, guys. When I read historical narratives like this that help me see the roots of so many things and the parallels between them, mm-hmm. like it is so illuminating and it's so almost like smacks you in the face with the truth. But it's like I would have never connected anything to do with River Phoenix with anything to do with the white supremacist movement. <laughs> and and right. the parallels are there, though. And the way you talk yeah. about how young men are groomed by sexual abusers and talk about how young men are groomed by white supremacist organizations, it's kind of like, well, damn, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and not just men, but that is the bulk, the bulk of the narrative is about uh, men. So sure. that's who I'm focusing on. But I just thought that was so incredible. And I'm curious, I'm almost asking the same question, Sarah, did a little bit of a different way, but how did those parallels first click for you? When did you go, oh my God, that's the narrative? Well... I'd been thinking about this stuff for a long time, long before starting the book. I've been affected by those things. I've had friends that have been affected by these dynamics of the grooming. And without going into too much detail, I have stories that are even more personal (laughs) that I did not include in the book because I didn't have people's permission. Maybe there will be a Rose Garden part two. Oh, we'll see. (laughs) Right. But, um... So I've been thinking about them for a long t- that for a long time. And when I started drawing about River Phoenix, I knew I was going to write about Ken Death as well because I just sort of associated them among the same group of people just from what I had sort of gleaned of Portland information and uh, you could call it gossip over the years, but I definitely found a lot of actual sources for the stuff that I put in into the book. Some of it is just old sort of anecdotal stories of my own, of my life that I've just kind of kept in my mind. But I could tell that it was going to involve adults preying on younger people. I just knew that part. Yeah, I think that that's part of what makes it such a profound work because there is a lot of not allegory, but something where it is drawing these comparisons. There are parts of it. And then there's parts of River Phoenix's story as well, where you're just like, this kid didn't have a chance. You know, that's he was truly just it's so sad, you know. Um, I like how you tie it to like the greater Portland story, because I feel like a lot of this stuff is the stories that we don't hear a lot. So it's very meaningful, but there's kind of a somber side to it as well where it's like telling people not to get I guess too comfortable it's kind of like very time is a flat circle like a lot of these problems are happening today as well Mm -hmm. yeah 
I'm wondering now, too, what are you working on after I Never Promised You a Rose Garden? Because you've been working on this for so long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I've been, uh, there's a story that I wanted to write like a long time ago, like 10 years ago, but I didn't feel like I had the comics chops to do it yet. So I think I finally have the comics chops. And so I've been drawing this, it's going to be a graphic novel length story, comic based on a book by Freud that's called Dora. I don't know if you guys know the Dora case. Yeah, totally. So it's Freud and Dora. And um, it's my vision of what happened based on Freud's like totally convoluted narration of it. And also like historians that have gone back and kind of like pieced things together. So I'm taking a lot of that research, but it's based on his book. Like a lot of the dialogue is from straight out of his book, which is, it's really outrageous stuff. Yeah, he's the worst. He <laughs> it's the worst. I um was just recently kind of revisiting that, I guess, not really rereading it, but reading back up on it and was just like, this really? guy, <laughs> boo, boo yeah. Freud. Yeah, and at the same time, I, I'm fascinated by him because he has yeah. some like, I don't know, like I have a, fondness for some of the stuff that he says about like everybody having a homosexual side and like (laughs) um, just other random things that he says. I would feel almost a sympathy towards him, except that what he did had such huge repercussions on yeah. like, uh, the life of women and queer people. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like, real bad. Yeah, in real the, bad historical stuff. Really bad, bad roots. So that's what my story is about. It's about Dora. Oh wow! I'm really fascinated by her as a person, and right, just feel like his uh, interpretation of what was going on in her life was so ass backwards. <laughs> Seriously, everything about that story, it's like you're reading and then like between the lines, it's so obvious what isn't being said, right? Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. it's so obvious that there's a whole other side to this and the person is just looking at him like he's a total quack the whole time (laughs) because he is like he's being really, really intense and disturbing to her. Yeah. And like not believing that that's what he's doing, right? Like he's just like, oh, this is a failure. I'm trying to help her. And she doesn't even understand that I'm trying to help her. Why doesn't she understand in her woman brand that I'm trying to help? (laughs) The funniest thing about Freud to me is like, I actually think everything he got right almost was like something he walked backwards into and was like, oh, (laughs) I discovered something useful or I have like a name for something people have known for fucking ever. One or the other white dude yeah um, right but, what I discovered <laughs> what have you discovered yeah. I discovered and, it <laughs> put a flag on it all I over discovered it, it. <laughs> but it's like he didn't have the ability to then apply that to himself you know or like how he perceived things no. or his studies he's like here's the truth but I'm not going to worry about how that reflects on me. I'm just I'm Yeah, or like I'm what concerned. I'm saying about myself, right? Yeah, like the exactly. whole time where it's like, yo, yeah. we didn't need to know that. Oh, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like you just said everybody personal. does that. That means you, you do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, Stop saying everybody, it's you. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally. Oh, it's too funny. It's a real riot. Oh, that... <laughs> Oh, that Freud. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Rapscallion. Uh, yeah, so going back to I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, I just was hoping you'd talk a little bit more about the title and, uh, and how you chose it and what you're trying to highlight through it. Yeah, well, um, Portland is known as the City of Roses. So there's rose gardens around. And I don't know if you know the song, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. But um, I do. Yes. Lynn Anderson, I believe, is the artist who's saying that. I got a like on Instagram by Lynn Anderson official when I tagged, I never promised you a rose garden, <laughs> which I'm not sure if they knew what they were liking or not, but Adorable. that was exciting. <laughs> and um, so the song is sort of about like, you know, I never promised that it was going to be good with me or whatever to, to be like in love with me. It was also a book about a girl with schizophrenia. And I was recently, a few years ago, diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which um, talk about feelings. It's a mood disorder. And uh, I uh, just identified a lot with the book. 
It's also a movie, which is terrible. I really do not recommend it. Wouldn't watch it. So that's that's where I got the title. Was in homage kind of to the song and the book sort of spliced together as like this depression narrative slash don't expect Portland to be as rosy as people have depicted it. Yeah, because like Portland has a vested interest in like revamping that image, right? And so there's a lot of suppression of, even like when those articles come out, it's always like, what? You know, someone's like, what? And with your book coming out, you know, people are like, what? And and Sarah, as Sarah said, like, I had no idea the extent. Like, I knew that Oregon was founded to be, like, you know, a white haven. But I didn't know anything about, like, the details that you went through. And I really appreciate narratives that hold a mirror up to us even when we don't want to look in it. And I think this is, like, a really important book for white people to read in particular because we need to be able to look at and accept and know what we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is we can't pretend that these entrenched white supremacists are misunderstood poor people, right? Like that is such a fucked up narrative and it's mm-hmm. one we're so invested in. But your book is such a clear and unflinching examination of the ways that nice white people make it easier for white supremacists to operate and in fact are not just complicit but imperative to the white supremacist mission and that Mm. is i think that's we have to have that conversation and it's like yes it's ugly and yes it's not fun and yes there's like yes we owe reparations for sure but there's like also a whole myriad of other things that that can unsettle for us and make us understand about how inequity racial inequity in particular and also age inequity how it manifests because it's easy to just be like, oh, well, maybe that's just like you, maybe you misunderstood that person or maybe that's just freedom of speech. You know, we just talked Mm. about that. Like maybe that, you know, like I don't like what Nazis say, but don't they have a right to say it? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, because then they murder people. Like Mm -hmm. that is not speech. Hmm." Yeah. It's like them setting out the call, right? Yeah. That's like, there's plenty of things I can't say on the air that I won't say on the air because I would then be arrested. And it's like, hmm, that was a bit of a rant. But my point is, it seems to me you're addressing white people and you're talking about truly our problem, our main problem, which is white supremacy. Yeah. And, and I'm curious why you think, beyond like the simple sort of like, you didn't know, now you need to know. Like, what's your deeper mission or your your hope for readers? Like, what do you want readers to do when they finish reading this, maybe? Gosh, that's a big one. What I would love people to do is feel inspired to write their story of their town or what what the underbelly, the, the problems, the secrets and stuff are that they've been carrying around and make their own stories. That's what I would love. I would love to see the New Orleans version or the Philadelphia version or you know, the Baltimore version. And I can't really elaborate on what you said because it was all so astute. <laughs> I had a head of steam going. Yeah, it was know? great. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that that all came across. I feel like we put a lot of work on Black, Indigenous, and people of color to educate us as white people. And we're like, oh, we, you know, artists get forced into niche kinds of stories, niche mm-hmm. kinds of of books, of of comics, where they have to, you know, deal with this this pain and deal with racism. And absolutely, I have nothing but respect for the artists who choose to do so. And and then I think there's something really powerful about white artists choosing to grapple with white supremacy. And so I'm, I'm deeply inspired, truly, by by the narrative. I I loved being uh, surprised by every like turn of the page. Like I just didn't know what I was going to learn next. I was like, oh damn, okay, screenshot that. I need to remember <laughs> that fact. Like I loved it the wow. you know in your afterward when you get into like the girlfriend, the you know mm-hmm. the white girl who's also instigating violence, and mm-hmm. it's a calling to account, but it's not. It's not what people would expect one to be. Mm. It is a calling to account through your own personal experience and through these, you know, celebrity and and white supremacist narratives. And that's just like, these are facts. This is life. (laughs) Welcome to it. Yeah, I don't like it either. And (laughs) that feels like very fair to me is I guess what I'm saying. (laughs) Good. Wonderful. Sarah, did you have other questions? I hope that everybody reads this comic, I guess, because it's very good. I love the art. I appreciate kind of the experimental format 
And I like that it is telling things that we often don't even see, you know, not not even just in comics, but just in the world at large. Like there's a lot of conversations happening that don't always get addressed. And I think that it is great. And I'm just glad. I'm glad that it came together. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. And it's just nice to see a really nice book come out with your name on it. Thanks. It means a lot. It's completely unlike anything I've ever read before. I think that if you enjoy comics, if you enjoy learning, then this is just an absolute delight. And maybe that's a weird way to describe something that has right. so much <laughs> oh, like, no, grim like and that. heaviness. But like, I was, I was like, huh, mm-hmm. who knew? Now I know. Compelled, I feel yeah. like a better person. And I cried. And oh, wow. I was like, oh, God, it made me miss River Phoenix, like, so deeply. And I don't have near the, like, connection you do. I'm just, like, thinking of his little Indiana Jones face and being like, oh, God, I just <laughs> love him. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think anything that can evoke that much emotion is a good thing, truly. And, yeah, this is a work I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. Oh. And so I know it was like, absolutely a labor of love over six years, and I will mm-hmm. be cherishing it for many, many longer than that. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So where can people find the book? Well, uh, they can order it from Fantagraphics online. Um, I believe there's lots of outlets that are going to be carrying it, but I'm not super familiar with what small bookstores right now are carrying it. Uh, Floating World Books in Portland is a great place to order it from. Otherwise, Fantagraphics itself on their website is a great place to go. Mm-hmm. And also, if you request it at your local library, right, that's sales on the book. So Definitely, definitely want to be working to libraries because they are, like, crucial. Like, I want it yeah. to get to the libraries and people that frequent libraries. So, yeah, totally. It will yeah, Sarah and I are always there. like, and the library. And the library. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for the libraries. And there's so many. So if you sell to like a thousand or something, it's like, that's a big old boost to your sales. Yeah, so if they all I take think it's four, great. then that's all the books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so go request it. Go buy your copy and go request yeah. it at your local library. Yes, please. And then you could read the two different copies. <laughs> or you don't have to really. You, can you just could recommend it to library. friends without actually lending out your copy. Oh, there you go. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Well, Manny, thank you so much. This has been just absolutely delightful to get sort of a, a behind-the-scenes peek, to get to explore the themes and your your career as an artist. You know, we're obviously huge fans. Sarah's a good friend, so that that's another layer that you have there. Um, but, you know, we we are big fans of Gay Genius. We will, listeners, be linking to our Patreon episode of Gay Genius in the show notes, so go check that out and pick up Gay Genius as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm a huge fan of Bitches on Commas, so thank you for having me. Oh, my heart. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot. T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, 
and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.